Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 49. It is good to be with you once again. This is one of those episodes where we have a long interview, uh, one that I think is a, a really good interview, but it is a long one. So therefore, I'm going to keep the introduction portion of this pretty short so that we can get straight to it. So in short, today, Life in the Pit is conducting its first book review with the author. The book that we're going to be talking about is called Strategies for Success in Musical Theater, a guide for music directors in school, college, and community theater. And it's written by Herbert D. Marshall. And I have to call him that because that's the way it looks on the book. Uh, but he goes by Butch. We'll be talking to him today. Butch Marshall, a.k.a. Herbert D. Marshall. And his book, and it is published with Oxford Press. You can find it online as an ebook format in all the major outlets, including uh, Kindle and Barnes and & Noble. And this book is something that you would want to read if you're just getting started with music directing or if you're thinking about getting started with music directing. Or I would say, even if you've been doing it for a while, but you'd like to get more organized, you'd like to get um, just kind of a better idea of the full craft and the full potential of what you could be doing. And I'm also going to say that this book is really good for anybody who wants to know what the music director goes through, and I would even say those on theater boards, because there are, uh, there are a lot of things that are relevant for people who are on theater boards, and including a really good idea of how to raise money in order to have a live pit orchestra. And we're, we, this book talks about so many things, and we're going to talk about every chapter which is why the interview's a little long. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you now, I would encourage you uh, before, during, or after this interview, go ahead and go to uh, wherever you like to get your eBooks and go ahead and click on it. The book, once again, is Strategies for Success in Musical Theater, a guide for music directors in school, college, and community theater. It's by Herbert D. Marshall. It's at this point that I would give you some introduction uh, to his background, but we cover that in the interview. So let's go ahead and get to that. This is my conversation with Butch Marshall. So it's my pleasure today to be talking to Butch Marshall. Butch, uh, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. And uh, just tell us a little bit about what you do and where you are from. Uh, sure. So uh, my specialty is uh, preparing music teachers. So I teach at Kent State University in Ohio, uh, which has um, at least three degree programs uh, and some variations on those. So I teach at the undergrad, the master's and the doctoral level, um, working with getting students ready for their first uh, licensure to teach music education teachers who are coming back for uh, more information for a master's program, and then doctoral students who either sort of want to max out their uh, understanding of research or they want to make the move to higher ed. 
Nice. Okay. You've written a great book called Strategies for Success in Musical Theater. And uh, and, and just for those who are wondering, if they go look for, looking for Butch Marshall, they won't find it. <laughs> it's, it's under Herbert D. Marshall. I take it that's your real name and Butch is a nickname? Correct. That's my given name. And I was uh, and I was given a nickname when I was young of Butch and I was supposed to outgrow that, but never really did. Nice. And this book is with uh, Oxford Press. It was published 2016. Um, So but but let's just so we're going to really talk about that. But let's talk just uh, just maybe a brief history of how did you get into music and how did you get into theater? Uh, Sure. So um, uh, I grew up in upstate New York and I am from a musical family and I always loved music and did a lot of music and had support on both sides of my family for doing music. But I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a rural part of upstate New York, which people, if they haven't been there, don't really realize that exists. But uh, upstate New York is a very rural place. And so I grew up on a big thousand acre farm. And um, so I had lots of time by myself out on a tractor or in a haymow or feeding cows or fixing fence to uh, practice my singing, to figure out how to double tongue, to do all that kind of stuff. Um, And so I took piano, I took voice, I took French horn. No, that's something that we have in common. I started French horn, I think in sixth grade. Right. And um, worked on all of those things and then really loved music and decided to uh, major in music education and um, and be a music teacher. And so I did two degrees in music ed and then went back to New York State and taught for 11 years and then decided I wanted to learn more stuff and went and did a PhD at Temple University and then, uh, to my surprise, moved into higher ed. And all the way along, I did little bits of musical theater. Um, I didn't start music directing until I was over on the east side of New York State, um, up around Saratoga Springs. Um, But uh, I saw my first musical when I was really little. I saw my babysitter Mm. in Oklahoma when I was maybe three. Um, And uh, I saw a pretty good... um, uh, a high school production of Funny Girl, and I played in my first pit when I a professional job when I was a ninth grader. I played the third horn book in Camelot hmm. uh, for a summer stock theater that's still around called the Merry Go Round Playhouse in Auburn, New York. Um, so I, I I've been able to do both for quite some time, and whenever I can, I do musical theater. But my main gig is helping people be good music teachers. And that's really where the book came from because in the very dense curriculum of helping people be music teachers, as you might know, they have to learn how to play every instrument. They have to learn how to teach every instrument. They have to learn how to teach choir, orchestra, band, and general music. There's no time for a class in musical theater. And yet we expect almost everybody to come out and be able to lead a musical theater production. And so, um, uh, so I wrote a book to give people at least a little uh, guide to how to get started when they uh, begin, because for especially vocal people, it's a very overwhelming task, and you can lose a lot of money quick if you don't know what you're doing. Great. 
Uh, good. You talked about what led you to, uh, to do this book. Uh, so like in chapter one, um, let's just talk about like who this book is for. And I think you kind of said that. So what I got from it was it's for kind of the beginning music director, like uh, assuming you're not a beginning musician, because this doesn't get into basics of music. It's kind of assuming that uh, you're a trained musician, either as a keyboardist or uh, a vocalist of some kind. But maybe you haven't done musical theater before. Um, but I kind of got the uh, I got the impression that this might be for someone who's going to be working for kind of a lower level theaters. Uh, and, and I don't mean be careful how I word that, uh, not a professional company, but more for amateur companies. So like for public schools or for community theater, uh, and, and you kind of imply with some of your information that you might have to get outside of your box. You, you might not just be doing the music, but you might be doing some actual directing or some, uh, you know, some helping with other areas of the production. Would you say that's kind of a fair assessment of the audience for the book? Right, absolutely. And um, community theater people and um, college people who don't have an amazing musical theater program to draw upon, but have college kids who just want to tell stories through musical theater. All of those people are sort of in the same boat that you have to do some teaching while you're the music director. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of book that I think is, it's very helpful. I guess it's been about five years now. I gave a talk for our local piano teachers association. They have a bi-monthly meeting, so every other month. And uh, they like to have a special program, a guest speaker, just talk about something different. And then I was asked to, it's kind of funny, I was originally asked if I could talk about um, music directing for musical theater and also doing film scores, because I, I do that. And, you know, it's a 45-minute talk, and, and I'm like... Um, I don't think you want me to try to do both of those. <laughs> so I said, uh, music directing for musical theater is probably more relatable, you know, to this crowd. So I put together a, you know, about a five or six document program, you know, that and, and talked about it. Um, but your book pretty much covers the same thing and gets into a lot more depth. So I, I found that really, you know, I, I really enjoyed it from that perspective. Oh, great. So your chapter two, you know, we talk talk about um, it's a good chapter for who's who in theater. You know, just for example, there's a lot of people with director in the title. And, and I can think of three off the top of my head. You've got the artistic director, the executive director and the music director. Sometimes <laughs> that's all those three roles are played by two people or one person <laughs> your bigger theaters have it by three i've worked with a lot of theaters where the artistic and the executive are the same so your executive is in charge of the budget uh or at least in you know high up on the board of directors that oversees all of that and your artistic director is the one who is basically in charge of the production like if you're a music director and there is an artistic director the, art, the artistic director is the supervisor of everybody else. I think, I think the way I've heard it explained before is, you know, your artistic director, if, if you're as a pyramid, or I guess your executive director is probably going to be on top. And then right below that would be the artistic director, unless they're the same person. And then kind of side by side, you would have the music director and the choreographer and maybe even lighting designer and 
sound designer, I guess kind of your, I guess your technical designers would be all like on that next level. And then like you could draw a diagram from the music director to, uh, you know, pit musicians, <laughs> you know, I think would be good from there. And then, um, and of course everyone else has their own kind of assignments <laughs> from, sure. from there. So, uh, you kind of go over that. You also talk about, this is where I, where I said that you're really getting outside the box. You, you talk about budgets, timelines, securing rights. So I think if you're a music director for a functioning theater that's been around for a while, you're probably not doing much with budgets and, and, and stuff like that. It's probably out of your hands. But again, it's not a bad idea to know what's going on just in case you've got to get your hands dirty with some of this other stuff. <laughs> right. And maybe even just to have empathy for what other people are doing because you can make their job easier or harder because you know what they're dealing with. And so even when I'm working, like you say, with a, a big theater that has a lot of layers that I don't have to be the person who does the contract to MTI, uh, it's nice to know and to send that person all the info that they need because you know what it's like to do that contract. Right. And you, you have some nice checklists of things that you should think about before doing a show. Uh, like, uh, you know, who, who can walk a tightrope, sing, act, and juggle? Do we have a trap door? Do we have a likable, believable uh, Tevye for Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, and there's a quote here I just love. I highlighted, a healthy skepticism will keep everyone honest and reveal the challenges ahead. But then we get to chapter three. And uh, so I like how you have the book structured. So chapter three is six to nine months before opening night. Chapter four is four to six months before opening night. Chapter five is two to four months before opening night. Uh, chapter six, one to four weeks before opening night. And then uh, your final chapter is opening night and beyond. So to be a good music director, you really have to plan. And um, that was something I think the reason that I haven't had any breaks before COVID since I started music directing was because I was able to impress certain important actors and directors that I had a sense of organization. Like one big thing that apparently like some other music directors have not done well is that I will take a three hour time that I've been given for music rehearsals and say for 20 minutes, we're going to work with these actors on this song. And then I don't need them the rest of certain certain numbers of them for the rest of the night. So I'm going to work with, you know, uh, a different group of characters or just a couple, you know, on this. And my goal is, and I think this comes from, you know, having played horn in orchestra. Uh, I always appreciated it when I had a conductor that would say, okay, we have a two and a half hour rehearsal. Uh, we only need the horns on certain pieces we're doing or the brass, you know, so like to start with the big pieces first and then like the trumpets can go French horns stick around. And then at some point around eight 30 or whatever, if it started at seven, it's like, okay, this is now for strings only. So everyone else, thank you. I, I always really appreciated that and kind of vowed that anytime that I'm in charge of anything, I don't, I don't want people's times to be wasted. So organization, I think really defines a successful music director. So you're thinking way in advance, six to nine months out. Um, what are what are some of the things that you're thinking about that far in advance? 
So I want to get right down into score study. Um, I've had unit theaters that regularly only hire four people for the pit, Mm -hmm. uh, little, little theaters, you know, theaters that see 80 people. And then I've had um, big theaters that still hire 20, 22 players. And so I really want to dissect that score and know exactly what kind of sounds I want, um, where, uh, where I'm going to get those sounds from and how to make the best use of the, the people that I've got. Um, and so I love to start really dissecting the score and I don't listen. I read the score and I play it at the keyboard, but I don't listen to recordings very much because I don't want to be um, swayed by the original orchestration. But then also they they add extra players to uh, albums. Right to recording albums. And so you don't want to get fooled by this big fat sound and then you don't get that big fat sound. So I want to really dissect the whole thing myself and figure out what it's about. So I love to start with the score and do a really thorough analysis so I know exactly what I need and what kind of players I need. And I I have to spend my money on this person, this person, this person, because they're absolutely essential. Like in A Little Night Music, I have to have a great cellist. I have to have a great harpist uh, that's essential to the sound of the piece. Right. I really like your attitude of, uh, you know, let's let's get away from the cast recording when coming up with a vision for the sound of the show. Uh, I, I often wonder, I mean, just on based on your experience, have you, have you had trouble <laughs> with a music director, uh, with actors who just can't get away from the cast recording? Oh, completely. In fact, I have, I've worked for theaters that just um, steal the cast recording and copy it and send it to the entire cast. Mm -hmm. And that makes me crazy because it's not going to sound like that. So if I can get to them ahead of time and say, look, it's not going to sound like that. And so please don't give them that idea. So yes, absolutely. That drives me crazy. And so when we have, if I go to a place that has a full cast meeting immediately, like sometimes, you know, there's the casting and then there's a full meeting right away where you hand out scripts. Right. That's usually where I say, do not listen and do not watch. We are telling this story this way and do not base your performance on um, you know, what Barbara Cook did, because that's not the story we're telling right now. Right. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And uh, I, I just feel like there's, a you know, especially in the world of amateur theater, I, I just feel like that's just hard for some people to grasp that we can tell our own version of this. It doesn't have to be exactly like, I, and in fact, if if we didn't take that approach, I mean, if that wasn't taken in the professional world, then how would you ever get these revivals that distinguish himself? I mean, if you listen to the cast recording, it's like you definitely know the, is it 2003 or 2013 version of Pippin? I think it's 2013 mm-hmm. compared to the 1970s version. It's like, I mean, that's a big deal. And which one are we doing? Uh, are you doing the 2003 Little Shop of Horrors or her, are you doing, you know, the 1982 original? Uh you know, we make those distinctions all the time, but for some reason, like when it comes to doing that, we have to choose which cast recording said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we do our own? Maybe we can like combine some elements, you know? So, uh, 
So I really like that, you know, your approach leads to individuality and creativity, you know, for, for a production. I know I've got actors listening. I, I just encourage everybody, you know, let's get off this fixation. We, we got to sound like a cast recording and, and model our performances after that. And for the pit players, um, if you go, if you fall into that trap, then when you finally get to do a new show, God forbid a show that doesn't even have a recording out yet, that none of them have played. I love having these pit players around me who love to sink their teeth into something new because they've played 14 Oklahomas and 74 Greases, but they have never touched this new piece. Right. And um, and they love digging their teeth into something brand new because they like telling a new story, including new things for them to, to learn. And so I love it when I can surround myself with pit musicians who love to tackle something new that they may not have heard before, but they get to create brand new from whole cloth. Right. Yes. Um, and we're still talking about chapter three, six to nine months before opening night. And I just have to say that I, I found this, you know, just based on like my highlights list, th this was probably my favorite chapter of the book. Um, I would just go through some of these things on, uh, on page 44 and 45, you have a, a really great list of nine moods and how to have the pit instruments, how, how like certain instrumental sections should play uh, to bring that out. I won't go over like the whole detailed list, but your very first one is uh, if the mood is angry, uh, percussion, use harder mallets, sharper attacks, snap the wrist and find the best playing area to achieve the desired effect. Uh, for strings, play with a heavier bow, heavier bow strokes. A little scratchiness is good. Um, perhaps how a uh, su ponticello or batuto. Um, winds, firmer weighted attacks using a harder T articulation and more separation with abrupt releases and you've got similar details for playing creepy happy majestic mechanical mysterious tender tired and zany frenetic you've got a section here where you talk about robert russell bennett and the sound of broadway and um Ro robert russell bennett i the first time i heard that name actually it's kind of, i'm probably i'm probably unique in this my first association with Richard Rogers was the soundtrack for victory at sea. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and that was because I was getting really into film music long before show tunes. And my dad, you know, who was two years in the Navy, 20 years in the air force, he knew that he goes, you need to find that soundtrack and listen to that. Uh, and, and he knew it was Richard Rogers. And I, I listened to that and uh, I got a cassette tape of like there was victory at sea and then there was more victory at sea it was like two different cassettes and in one of them the liner notes it was a quote from richard rogers goes my music owes so much to robert russell bennett he he gets things out of it that i i couldn't have have even envisioned uh so let's just talk very briefly uh i mean not just about robert russell bennett but about the importance of great arrangers in all these shows yeah, we owe so much to the arranger, and so often the composer is writing at a keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have, you know, 
I knew you can get lots of different sounds out of a piano, but we have, you know, that one piano sound. Uh, and there are certain pianistic things that that pianists do that don't work very well when you divide it up into 20 people that work great when just one person is doing it. And the way pianists arpeggiate and the way pianists um, accompany things, uh, it's a certain way of going. And so you have to have a person who has uh, a great understanding of orchestration and what sounds good on different instruments and different um, uh, tone qualities and timbre uh, uh, combinations and even intonation tendencies. And Robert Russell Bennett just did that so well. He gave us that fat, rich, warm, uh, lovely, luscious sound for the Rodgers and Hammersteins and the Lerner and Lowe's. And he sort of uh, set the bar, I think, for that big, luscious um, orchestral sound. And I just love those I just love those scores. And when I get to do those shows, I just love to do them. Uh, so they're so um, evocative and emotional. Um, and so that doesn't work for everything, of course. But um, but yeah, so the orchestrator um, is, is so often the person who translates that piano version into an orchestrated version with different instruments so that we can have different tone qualities. And so those mood things that you were really kind to point out, um, that orchestrator has to say, well, can a clarinet achieve this effect? And um, should I put this on xylophone or will that sound too cartoony? And um, what is this going to be like on cello? And if I get to that extreme range of cello, will it give me the angst that I need? So you have a really talented arranger who can bring more uh, storytelling and musical meaning out of that original score. Right. And um, I, I would also say, you know, specifically that aspect of arranging, you know, sometimes you get more than one person doing this job that would be the orchestration. But uh, so a lot of times the, the, the arranger is also given a license to like beef, you know, get a little bit more creative with the harmony, uh, right. add some counterpoint. And, and I really feel like you're. Your, your arranger is the person who's really technically sound with just like how to control the music and to come up with some, so I, I should say how to craft the music is, uh, is something that he or she does really well. Uh, I remember when I did nine to five the first time, it, it's, it was, there were two theaters doing this in the area and, and I'm friends with so many of them on Facebook and I kept, seeing how much they, they were talking about how much they loved Dolly Parton's music for the show. And when I started getting into it, I'm like, I love Dolly Parton. I think she's a great person. I think she's a talented songwriter. There is no way <laughs> that nine to five, the show would sound like what it is. If it was entirely in her hands, I don't even think it would sound even like a third of what it is. And I know it's uh, Alex Lacklamore and, and I cannot think of the other arranger. He's another big guy uh, in the business. And, um, you know, I would love to know what, why they love it's like keys like six flats and things like that so much. Right. <laughs> this is something we all complain about over drinks. Right. <laughs> but that little girl on Annie, she couldn't have sung this in C. She had to sing this in D flat. But there are all kinds of chords that, you know, like all kinds of extended harmonies, you know, sevenths and ninths and sus chords is like, um, 
you know, in, in the entire discography of Dolly, you will not find, you know, those chords in her pure songs, you know. But, you know, certainly the composer, the person who gives birth to the musical, whether it's the lyrics or the music, you know, deserves a lot of credit. But I just, I feel like you got to look for the fine print to find out who designed the books. And of course, you know, I, I mentioned Alex Lacklemore. I feel like he might be the most visible of these people because of things like the Hamilton movie and, uh, you know, being the music director for that. And he's, uh, he, he might be the, the most, uh, most visible, but, you know, then people like, uh, you know, Stephen Sondheim, you know, he, he's had some hands in things like that bef- before he made it big as, as a composer. But then Jonathan Tunick really did a lot of his orchestrations and he's responsible for a lot of that sound, but you're absolutely right. So many composers start in as copyists, rehearsal pianists, arrangers and orchestrators, and then they meet people and they get a gig. Well, and you're, I'm not really a composer. You're a composer. Mm -hmm. It must be a leap of faith to hand your composition to an orchestrator. Right. And say here, um, makes you know, make this into an ensemble for fourteen people. That must be uh, a tremendous um, a challenge as a as a composer who just gave birth to a you know a big project and then handed it over to somebody else to say you know make this sound pretty. Yeah, and and I and I have to say, just in full disclosure, I have never gone through that situation. But I, you know, I <laughs> I have thought about. It. So my work on films has been, you know, the budget really only allows for a very few players. You know, so I've never gotten to do the big budget film where and, and with the time crunch. I mean, a lot of times, like Hollywood composers are not doing their own orchestrations. Um, I would say two thirds of the time, at least they could do them. They're, they're that good, but they have four weeks to write two hours of music and it's just not enough time. So you've got to get other hands on the project, you know, that are dedicated to that sole task. Uh, so I've always wondered how will I feel when that happens? And, and, and I guess the thought is if you're, <laughs> if you're like Michael Kamen and you have two and a half weeks to do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and uh, there makes sense why there's 14 orchestrators on that score, <laughs> um, because you're writing frantically just to get something into their hands. Um, and even, even the great John Williams has other people orchestrating his scores because uh, now they're very detailed, you know, they, they've, these guys have been interviewed and they said, I mean, he's got everything labeled, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was the same way, but there's been very few Hollywood composers that have hung on and not allowed anyone to touch their score. The only the only ones that come to mind are Ennio Morricone, uh, mm-hmm. who actually put in most of his movies composed, conducted, and orchestrated by. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bernard Herrmann was insistent on hanging on to to his, and and that's why you got some really original things like he would do like 13 harps in one score. <laughs> Why that number? I have no idea, but, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's rare. I think Tom Kitt does his own work like next to normal, for example. I mean, so much going on in chapter three, you talk about choral balance and budget in, in affecting your casting choices. Uh, you know, which means, you know, you, you might not, it, if you're only going to have about eight people in your cast, you might not want a, a large 
orchestra to go with that, you know, and so forth. So, uh, and also, I think one of the things that you bring up, I don't remember if it's in this section or later, um, but we know what sound reinforcement, you know, and that's going to affect everything about how you cast a show and so forth. Right. And we, we sort of know, once we've worked for a theater, we sort of know what their capabilities are and what they're what they don't have. Like how many body mics do they have? How good is the sound reinforcement? Do they want to mic the orchestra or not? Like some places the sound designer is super ambitious and wants to control all the levels of everything. And then other places you, the music director, get to control your levels and then they mix the sound in. Um, but yes, once you once you get to a theater and know what they can do, then you have a sense of what's realistic. And because I, I hate to spend three hours giving players the sweaty palm the whole time, trying to keep them beneath the singers, because they really do they want to play. There's got to be some times where they can open up and play. Right. Uh, you have a great story here. I'm going to read probably about half this paragraph. So this this is your story. Uh, when my career was just getting started, I was offered a job music directing The Music Man. That was with a rural community theater that had a good relationship with some professional musicians, but they paid very little, and they had the funds to hire only a handful of players. I tried to press the producers for more funds. They resisted. I quoted the lyrics to 76 trombones and vowed that unless every instrument in that song was in the pit, it would be unethical and I would have no part of it. I was young and idealistic. They called my bluff and found another MD, but I was able to music direct that show a few years later with better management, cast, and orchestra, and I did have nearly every instrument mentioned in that song in the pit or on stage, because I filled the stage with my sixth grade band members playing Beethoven's Minuet in G. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I laughed and I also was inwardly applauding during that because there's things that I probably did back in my youth. I don't know that I would have the gumption to do now, but that took probably a lot of gumption. But that's that was great standing up for the integrity of the show. And I'm glad you got to do the music man with all of the pit. Uh, but is that a common story? Like you have to, this is tug of war with the budget. You've got to have certain instruments. I think absolutely. Uh, because sometimes somebody else picks the show. Mm-hmm. Now, I've worked at some theaters where you and a director and a choreographer, you you pitch a show and say, we would like to come and direct company. And we can do it with this many players and this budget and blah, blah, blah. Um, but then there's other places where an artistic director picks a season and then tries to find people who want to work on the season. And that's what this was, that they decided they had to do Music Man, but they didn't have the resources to do Music Man. And I just didn't want, and it's hard. You've, pro- you've probably done it. It's mm-hmm. a hard book. I mean, he was a great piccolo player and he wrote hard stuff. And so um, it, it's not an easy task. And if you scale it back, it makes it just harder on everybody. The first trombonist is just going to fall apart. So I'm, I was really glad I got to do that again. But yes, and then there's a famous, I don't think I put this in the book, but there's a famous event where um, I was doing Pirates and I was hiring a string quartet 
And I had to bring a violin to the board meeting of the orchestra because they synthesizers were just getting good enough that they had pretty good string sound. And they wanted me to do pirates with two synths and a drummer. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) And I said, no, I'm going to do pirates with a string quartet, a woodwind person and a trumpet player. And I'm going to play whatever else we need to play. And I had to bring my violin to a board meeting and demonstrate tremolo and double stops. But and I'm not a string player, but I can fake those things. Right. And, um, and show them why live instruments were what they were thinking of. And there's nothing on a keyboard that can really imitate that sound of a tremolo for a storm scene in an operetta. Right. <laughs> and so they let me have a string quartet. Um, so it was this nice little chamber orchestra, but um, so luckily, you know, it worked that time. Sometimes it doesn't. And you probably, if you're going to be miserable for three months, you might as well go do something else because you, you hate to put yourself through that. Right. Uh, I think for sake of time, I'll probably will, you know, won't elaborate on this next section, but, you know, to, to the point you just said, you have great tips. Um, and it's on page 53 and 54 of my copy of um seven tips for when it's time to decide who to hire you know because uh and and like you know just point number one is you know go ahead and rent everything you know go ahead and get the full complement of orchestra books because even if you don't use all of them you may be able to find some things in the books you're not using and give them to other players let's see nice little tip you 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 have a section on on etiquette and this was this is something very helpful. I think you know anybody who's in theater should probably take note of this. Uh, consider having donors sponsor the salary of specific chairs or sections. Generous patrons and revered colleagues have their names attached to everything from audience seats to restroom urinals. Uh, and, I, and I love you even side a theater uh, with that. Uh, so why not an endured orchestra chair? And this is really helpful because I think a lot of times, our theater boards, at least in my experience, it's all about, um, you know, what's coming in directly to the theater, but this can be offset. So when I did Les Miserables, I was told that I could hire 10 pieces. Uh, I started going down the list of what I had to have. I had to have, I had to have two French horns. I had to have one trumpet, one trombone. Um, I needed, uh, of course the percussion, I was going to have to have the keyboard, the two keyboard books, you know, <laughs> and, um, and of course I would, you know, they were counting me on, on that 10, you know, so I was the keyboard one slash conductor and, um, I was going to have to have two, at least two read players to, you know, can't do castle on a cloud with any less than that and bass. Yeah. Had to have a bass. Okay. Uh, left out all violins, you know, no, no violin, no viola, no cello. Well, one of the cast members who was also influential with the board of directors said, we got to have strings for that. It's like, you know, we got to at least have one of each, one violin, one viol- one cello. So he personally got some people to donate some money just for that, wow. went directly to the production. And so instead of 10, we had 13 pieces. And, you know, I think it, it made the difference. And when we got that orchestra together and I heard, like I just loved how involved the viola part was, you know, because viola sometimes uh, doesn't get that much. But um, I was just like I couldn't imagine not having that 
instrumentation or any less than that to do Les Mis? Well, and I think this is an idea that could work because it's such a clear, tangible donation for a corporation. And what corporation wouldn't like to say, we sponsor the concert master for uh, the, this run of this piece, or we sponsor the first trumpet player, or we sponsor the percussionist. There's probably people in that corporation that played those instruments and it's a nice, finite, tidy little sum of money, whereas other things change so much from production to production. But, you know, that's something that that is pretty is pretty easy to to predict. And then uh, I had a question for you. Yeah. When you're music directing and playing, mm-hmm. do you get paid to play or are you playing for free? <laughs> that is something that is often not ironed out. Right. So it is usually for free. Um, I have had one theater that gave me, you know, that basically there was a slightly higher rate for me playing and conducting. If they had just hired me and hired another pianist, though, they would have spent more money. So they saved money by <laughs> sure. by, by me coming together. Uh, and and I do. And there's another theater that kind of justifies the teaching aspect and the playing aspect. And there's one flat fee into that um i i I don't think that economically it always works out (laughs) that well but uh for me playing and you know in this area playing and music directing as one person is kind of just a way to get more gigs you know it's like because um there are theaters that are like that don't want to spend the full fee on both. You know, they want to maybe a slightly higher fee for one person who can do <laughs> both. And, 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 you know, I, I'm happy to, to do both. Uh, and the, the, the one thing that I decided about three years ago though, was if I'm going to be stick conducting the show, then I want an accompanist the whole time. Uh, just because it's just very hard to go from doing, you know, you know, sorry, this is audio. You can't see playing on the keys, you know, <laughs> to taking my hands off and then, you know, leading, leading with the stick. It's like, you know, what, if it's not going to be in my hands in the pit, then it, it does not need to be in my hands, you know, during rehearsal. So, but it took me, it took me a while before I made that decision, <laughs> but it was, it was the, it was a production of Pippin. We had, we had the full pit for that. I think we had 17 players because it was for a school and however many read books there are for that show, there there wasn't enough people who could play all of it. So it got divvied up. You know, it's like it, right. all the flute parts went to one person, clarinet and all that. So, yeah. And, and as just I just realized as soon as that got out of my hands, it's like it didn't sound right. The cast noticed the difference. And yeah, I really think that production could have been better if it had been established with an accompanist early on. So. Gosh, there's so much more in in chapter three. Uh, I just like um, one of the things you mentioned is uh, just this quote talking about score preparation. Mark the vocal parts prior to the first rehearsal. Uh, I've been guilty of not doing that, but I've tried to most of the time be very good about that. And um, and it's it's such a time waster at first rehearsal if you haven't asked the cast already or figured out what part can they sing. Um, And I, and I always have to do this because sometimes I I get a bunch of sopranos who, and and some of them will say, well, I can sing alto or they'll tell me, but I prefer soprano. And and I just say, I need to know what your range is. 
and I'm going to put you where <laughs> you need to be. Because uh, I've had some shows before where if I let everybody sing where they wanted to, well, I would have these dynamic first sopranos and like nobody in the alto. And and that's something I had to figure out early on. I had this, um, I've done a couple of Disney shows. And, and if I wasn't careful, I would end up with like the weaker voices all on the alto line right. and not having that harmony. So so I've tried very carefully to say, look, if you can sing alto and you're a strong singer, I need to have at least a couple of you on this, you know, so that we get some balance. And uh, and it's a, it's a funny thing about theater, at least in my experience, it's like when it comes to the guys, you have two types. You have the everybody who wants to sing tenor. is, And if you've got teenage guys, they want to sing. Uh, I, this was a term that I learned in college, mezzo blah. <laughs> <laughs> not too low, not too high. <laughs> uh, and, and have you ever experienced this before? Because I know you've done a lot of things with schools. Getting guys to not sing everything down an octave. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the, I, I, I think I have, I try not to yell in rehearsal, but I've gotten so frustrated in high school productions and, and, and community theater productions that use teenage guys. And it's like, there was there was one where I could not get I could not get the guys to sing right octave. And the guys were like 19, 19, 20. And I went to a rock show. This guy was in a rock band and you know, and and he sang the song. And all the notes he sang were super confident and well above the range that he was supposed to be singing in the show. And I just I had some choice words with him after that. It's like, you could sing like that and you wouldn't sing the way I asked you to in the show. <laughs> so I have that same kind of conversation with them too. And I liken it back to their audition. Here's the range you sang in the audition when I hired you. Right. You don't get to go backwards and pretend you have a different voice now that we're in rehearsal. You have to start at the level you were at at your audition and then improve. And there is uh, <laughs> one of my favorite high school students still quotes this to me. There's almost no bass singing in musical theater. Right. <laughs> it's baritone and tenor one and tenor two. And it all gets lost if it's down low and rumbly. That's something that opera people do for, you know, Satan and demonic figures their and and evil grandfathers, their bases. But in musical theater, we don't do that. Um, the judge in Sweeney Todd for a solo voice, but we don't do it very much. And so we can't really use those people. You've got to have a baritone range. Right. Um, and I don't know if you ever had this experience at all, but uh, every now and then someone does just, they, they, they don't audition well. I guess it's because they're timid. And their audition song doesn't really show off their range. And and when we go into the vocal exercises to work themselves up and figure out where the range is, I'll I'll, I'll write down a number and let's just say that uh, for uh, maybe it's like D five is where the soprano or, or where the where the female actor ends up going to. And so I don't put them on a part where they could go higher than that because they didn't show me they can do that. And then they get a role and there's something there that wasn't in audition. It's like they, you know, and, and, and you realize that there was a whole disconnect between their confidence <laughs> and in that, in the first environment of auditions and callbacks 
that wasn't there when they got a role that they maybe listened to the cast recording, maybe had some experience with. And so sometimes that's a, that's an issue with, with actors. And it's why we're always telling actors, you know, you must show us what you can do in the audition. Otherwise, you know, you, you're, you're not giving us the best chance, the fairest chance to use you in the best way. Right. Right. Just summarizing the rest of chapter three, you, you talk about, preparing your vocal rehearsals, you know, uh, some things that, are, that need to know. And as I've talked before, you know, there's really, there's really no substitute for getting at least a few voice lessons, you know, just kind of understanding how the voice works, especially if you're coming from it, from an instrumentalist side. Um, but I guess the last thing before we leave chapter three is you, you had a story about uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, said, what happened to my chorus? <laughs> Tell us a little bit, a little bit about that story. So I did a big production of Mary Poppins with a big cast and a big orchestra, and uh, but it, not a huge stage. And we just couldn't build the set that we wanted for, um, for the church scene for Feed the Birds. And so they said we were going to have scrims and the cast was going to sing behind the scrim so that it would sound like uh, so, of course, the old lady and Mary are are way downstage and the cast would be upstage, Mike singing through a scrim and it would sound like the sound is coming out of the church, mm -hmm. which I was OK, because that's some of the most beautiful. That's one of the only sort of chorale, lyrical, beautiful pieces that we get in Mary Poppins. Everything else is fast. And so I put a lot of time into that and. um and we put it on stage and the longer we went, the worse it sound. <laughs> and then finally, one of my guys uh, said, you know why it sounds terrible back here because they keep taking us to help move scenery. And so I was down to like six singers when I started with 22. Right. <laughs> and so I had to go fight with a bunch of people and get some singers back. And, um, you know, when you can't see them and nobody's watching the ship, uh, they can drift off and do something else. And that number was really suffering because you want that that beautiful Disney movie kind of chorus to come in and just waft over you. Um, and I wasn't getting that. So that was a good good lesson for me uh, that there's there's times when you need to let someone else conduct and drift back upstage and see what's actually happening up there. Right. Great. So we get into chapter four and this is four to six months before opening night. And just in summary, this is this is your auditions and callbacks. And I just wanted to ask just a few things on this chapter. So we spent so much time in chapter three, but just a few on these uh, last few chapters. Just elaborate why is it a bad idea in auditions for the singer to be a cappella or to use recordings so uh, i like to play auditions sometimes i sit at the table with the other directors but i love to play i love to sight read and i love to see if the singer will go with me and if the singer is communicating and collaborative with the accompaniment. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I can push the singer a little bit tempo-wise or maybe dynamic-wise, and that gives me a sense of how flexible that person is. Sometimes when they come in with the recording, 
they have only one way of doing the song and there's no budging them off of that way. And then the, the acapella person, I just flat out say there's almost no such thing in musical theater. <laughs> so you are demonstrating um, a skill that has no place in what we're doing. So if you insist, you can sing this song by yourself, but you're going to have to sing Happy Birthday or My Country Tis of Thee or something mm -hmm. with me at the piano because that's, the, that's how we actually do musical theater. Right. Well, and, and also, let's just be honest here, that if you're singing a cappella, can you, do you know how to match pitch? Can we? Right. <laughs> it's like because you, you can't be singing what you're singing if the you know in the key of d flat if you know your accompanist is in the key of d <laughs> right and, and maybe they picked a super obscure song right so maybe they're they're mm -hmm. singing a cappella and they're singing something from goldilocks well right. i don't right. know that tune so i can only guess what the success is like <laughs> right um and then you also have a quote in um that a lot of the things that you put in this book was Things I agree with, I didn't disagree with anything, but I felt like, yeah, this this is stuff I've been doing. I, I feel pretty validated in this, but I felt called out when you talked <laughs> <to> it. <laughs> as a as a music director. You need to resist the temptation to participate in what you call the reunion, and when we've had these auditions, it's like, you know, there. Every time I do a show. I probably have made friends with 10% of the actors, you know, you know, of, of the ones that I didn't know already. And I, you know, and I built, build my relationships that way. The, the rest, uh, they were colleagues and, um, you know, we, we probably don't have much of a relationship outside the show, but when we do the next show, when those new friends come back, it's, it's tempting to, to say, Hey, how are you doing? And, you know, I never really thought about it. The newbies behind, that are in the room that have not worked with this theater before, haven't worked with me, are like, oh, well, you know, I, I guess there's some favoritism here, and that's really dangerous. So you're absolutely right. So, you know, I get to be on stage once in a while. I know what that feels like to be in a new space with new people. And when you see that, a chunk of people are already best buddies with mm -hmm. people at the table and it makes you feel a little more alienated. And then I'm not a whiner, but for people who are looking for conspiracy theories, it makes them think that the show is precast. Right. And so I usually try to organize, we're going to go out to Applebee's afterwards and I'm going to hang out with y'all there, but I'm not going to really, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing during the audition. So it's only because of how, how much courage it takes for somebody to show up to an audition. And I don't want to give them any more barriers to feeling like they're welcome and like we want them to be there. Right. And I do know from talking to actors that they, they do feel that way, uh, you know, if they're new to a theater. And, and sometimes, you know, there, especially in community theater, there are certain actors that get cast more than others. And some of the people who don't get those roles, they start to think that it's not simply skill that's getting them the job. Right. Right. So on Chapter 5, we're talking about 
basically getting into the rehearsals at this point. And so I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on a couple of things. You talk about the whole part whole teaching approach. So uh, talk a little bit about whole part whole. Sure. So this is an education principle that goes way back. And um, this is why I thought it was, I wanted to write a book like this because um because I can weave a little bit of educational pedagogy and theory into what is otherwise a pretty regular skill building kind of process. So um, if you think about somebody teaching you a new board game, for instance, they might start with saying, okay, the, the object of the game is to be the last person on the board with the most amount of money. And you do that by going around here and answering questions. And then you go into the nuts and bolts of what are the rules? How do you do the order? Um, how do you do blah, blah, blah. And then you play the whole game and that takes you back to the whole. And so we learn a lot of things naturally that way. Often you want the big idea, then you want the nuts and bolts, and then you want the big idea again. Right. So um, so that would lend credence to the idea of at the first cast meeting, maybe you sing through the whole score, or maybe you talk through the whole plot and say, here's the basic idea of the show. This is our vision for the idea. This is the main story that we're trying to tell, and we're going to do it with this little spin right here. Um, and then you spend, as you know, two, three months diving into the minutia of getting everything right. And then you have to reassemble it and put it all back together. What, what happens is people often shortchange the beginning whole because they're so anxious to dive into teaching the choreography or teaching the pitches that the cast really starts without a good sense, without being on board with what the big picture is. And let's let's face it, sometimes there is no big picture. Right. <laughs> because sometimes the creative team hasn't really gotten together and decided what the big picture is. So I try to work with people who have some sort of vision of I want to tell this story and I want to tell it this way. And then I make sure that we do this in a very heartfelt way to the cast. So they feel like they're on this journey with us and we all are of one mind. We're going to tell the story this way. So uh, th that's what I think of as whole part whole. And I think people buy into your message more if you get them on board early with what's the big picture thing that we're doing here. Right. Great. And then you had, um, you know, you, you have some other things in this chapter that uh, I found really great. <laughs> when to stop tinkering with parts of the play. That's that's good thing, I think, for all of us to know. Um, also, you know, the importance of creating a safe environment. Um, you know, if your theater is in not such a great part of town as far as safety, you know, taking that into account and making sure your actors feel safe, uh, you know, upon entering and, and leaving and just having a plan in place for that. Uh, you had one more thing though I wanted to ask about, and you talked about, uh, again, we're still in rehearsals, scaffolding from the rehearsal accompaniment. What do you mean by that? So I think people talk about this as scaffolding or as training wheels. Right. That when people are learning new things, mm -hmm. they tend to need your support and they need a lot of support at the beginning 
and then you can gradually disassemble that support as they get more and more confident and independent. If you think about the way a choreographer does it, um, you know, a choreographer is going to be up front doing everything and yelling everything and giving them all of that support and little heads up, like we're going to move this way, we're going to move that way. And then gradually um, it becomes part of the dancer's body. So they don't have to, they don't have to do it any longer, even in the pit. Sometimes in pit rehearsals that don't involve piano, I'll play the score and reinforce for the players so that they aren't so worried about making mistakes. I'll play the score so they can hear the big picture and I can keep supporting them so they don't give up. Especially thinking about high school kids, half of them are in a key that they are unfamiliar with. The string players are playing in flat keys and they hate that. And the wind players are playing in keys with four, five, six sharps or flats. They don't like that. So sometimes I'll just keep playing along and giving them support. And then little by little, I don't have to play anymore. So this comes from this guy. Well, I thought it came from Jerome Bruner, who's a 60s ed psychologist. But actually, I think now it goes a little back a little bit further. But we generally credit it with ed psychologists who labeled this as a good learning and teaching practice. Nice. And um, then we get to chapter six and we we're talking about basically doing the performance. Now you're on opening night. Uh, well, I should say we're, we're leading up to opening night. We're, you know, this is when, again, the training wheels are coming off and um, talking about polishing. You talk about the sits probe uh, and, and some and a variation of that. Some theaters do a Vonder probe. So it's a difference between you get to sit down or you get to walk around. So, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, this is actually, I probably should remind new listeners, if you go, you have to scroll way back toward near the beginning of this podcast, but there is a short episode on th terms for musical theater. And I know that we included sits probe in there, but um, you know, just as uh, along with many other things, but uh, you know, this is basically, it's like the first time the cast gets to hear the orchestra or, or the band or whatever ensemble you have for the pit. And they get to do it in a way that they're not having to have their books down and do all of their blocking and their choreography. They can just look at their music, but hear the way it's supposed to sound, you know, assuming that you've got everybody there. Sometimes I do sits probes and this has been the hard thing. It's like when I hire pit musicians, I, I, I get them to commit to the performances and the dress rehearsals. But then, you know, when it comes to like those things like sits probes, uh, sometimes it's hard to get everybody there. And, and I end up having, you know, substitute or I can't find a substitute and you have some holes. So, uh, unfortunate reality that sometimes takes place. Uh, yeah. you, you had one thing I wanted to elaborate on this chapter. It's, it's a, it's a story you have related to the full Monty. It is, and you say it is good to have musicians who improvise. Um, tell us about that. <laughs> Sure. So, of course, you have to have great readers uh, because it's a big book and there's a lot of stuff to read. But um, if you think about it, our origins come out of jazz clubs and jazz musicians um, as well. Um, that's a big part of the origin of Broadway, Tin Pan Alley and jazz musicians and um, and jazz singers. And so the beginning of the full Monty starts in um, in a nightclub 
and a bunch of rowdy women are at the nightclub to watch male strippers. And a male stripper comes out with a boom box because, of course, it's, I think, it takes place in the 80s, 70s mm-hmm. in Buffalo. Right. So a, a male stripper comes out with a boom box and he's going to play his own music from his boom box and do a pole dance for these women. And so anyhow, we're, I think my second or third performance and my, uh, my stripper walks out in the middle of stage and he's, there's nothing else to help him. He's all by himself. It's uh, it's a blank stage with a spotlight and he walks out and he presses play. And of course, a CD is supposed to play out of the booth and, um, and it didn't happen. <laughs> so he like walks around in a circle and then he comes back and he presses play again and it didn't happen. The CD player jammed. They couldn't get anything in or out of it mm-hmm. and they didn't have a backup digitally. They only had an actual CD because it was the only time this music was used in the whole show. And so I luckily had, you know, Full Monty is kind of a big band mm-hmm. of a pit. And I luckily had people who could play jazz. And so we just launched into a kind of blues and B flat and kind of a raunchy uh, kind of dirty blues. And we just got through and he started doing his thing and it all worked out. But there was... There was no solution to that unless it was coming from us. Right. Right. So that's where it was great to have a pit. And then, of course, you know, the director was just so ecstatic that we had saved the day. It, and and the show was only three minutes old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. This opened the show. So it was a really good moment when you can save the day like that. Right. There's all kinds of instances in the pit where like a director will be you know, asking the the pianist, it's like, I know, can can you can we do something for an underscore here? There's nothing in the book, and you know, so like if I'm the one doing that, I'm like, well, okay, what's a theme? What's a melody from earlier in the show that I can kind of do some variations on that or something to right. set the mood? And if you're a percussionist, you better be good at improvisation because they're always asking, like, uh, you know, we need some cabaret music for this. Uh, you know, for this person going off stage, you know, and so forth. So, uh, gotta have a cowbell, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, or something like this, or slide whistle. Slide whistle is the gotta be the go to instrument for that, right? Uh, then your last chapter, you talk about opening night and beyond. You, you have a lot of good suggestions in there, like, uh, you know, if your conductor gestures, that's something I had to figure out is, you know, how do I tell the pit with my hands that I'm doing a vamp? that we're going out of a vamp and, you know, something you need to explain to your pit orchestra early on because your, your way may be different than another conductor. They just need to know what's going on. Um, I just wanted to talk about, you have some things when it comes to playing opening night and playing other shows, you talk about the importance of mindset, keeping your mind into the performance each night. Just elaborate on that a little bit. So I don't, I don't know about you, but um, I feel the weight of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we've established, sometimes you're only getting paid for it, but you do the full run of the show. Uh, often the rest of the directorial team is not there, mm-hmm. but you have to be there. You're the person who gets to shepherd the show all the way through. You know absolutely everything. You know every entrance, you know all the lines, 
you know all of the music, you know all of the cues, you have a good sense of um, the set changes and who you're looking for. Like you're looking for these feet or these hands or this lamp to come out. And then you know that you're almost done and you can give the fist signal and go on. Like you have so much minutia learned about the play. And it is three hours of nuance packed into your brain. And so you cannot, you cannot deviate at all, all or you will miss something. Um, you know, a singer's going up on their words, a set change takes longer than you think it's going to. Uh, somebody all of a sudden needs a cue from you. Uh, a player, uh, a, a player in the orchestra has a problem with an instrument change. You know, somehow you have to be the person who wrangles all, all of that. And so I find that having three hours of complete concentration is hard. I have to really gear up for it. Right. And then, um, when the show is done and you can kind of let that information seep out of your brain, it is such a relief to have it all, all go away. But I find that being really on, like I, even though the, the week, the weeks around performance are hard, I've got to get enough sleep so that from 7.30 to 10.30, I can be completely on and completely engaged in the whole thing. Right. And also, I, I think this is, anybody who's ever done any amount of musical theater kind of understands this. Um, everybody is dialed in on opening night. You have to really work at it to be dialed in on night number two. And, and it's like, I, th I think, all, you know, there are people who go to theater and, and they kind of know I, I don't want to go on the opening Saturday. <laughs> I'm not going to see the best. I knew one guy that used to get us group rates for touring Broadway shows and he always wanted to go on closing night. Yes. He says opening night, there's kinks, you know, there's excitement, but there's kinks. Closing night, you get that last effort that dialed in but, uh, you know, everything's been worked out pretty smoothly. So usually it's more likely going to be one of your best shows. <laughs> and the singers are not leaving anything. Right. Right. It's so intense. And they're like, I have nothing to save anything for. I want this performance to be the absolute best one. And this is what's going to be locked into my memory. Yeah, I, I love closing closing nights. And and you're you didn't mention matinees Sunday oh, yeah. <laughs> Sunday two p.m. matinees, the cast had an enormous blowout party the night before. They're still hungover. Their voices are down a fifth, and you've got to get them pumped up to do this matinee on Sunday for a lot of kids and a lot of grandmas. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be as good as opening night was, and that sometimes takes some cartwheels on your part. Right. Well. Thank you. This is this has been really great. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about the book. <clears throat> Once again, the book is called Strategies for Success in Musical Theater, A Guide for Music Directors in School, College, and Community Theaters by Herbert D. Marshall. It's published by Oxford University Press, 2016. And I just did a real quick check. You can find this on the Kindle Store, Google Play Books, Apple Books, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble. So, um, you know, I would encourage everybody, uh, if you're an aspiring music director, or even if you're, you've been a music director, but, you know, you feel like I'd, you'd like to do better at it, just get more organized, I would just rec I would highly recommend the book. And uh, 
So again, again, <laughs> talking to Butch today, but he's Herbert in the book. Uh, you know, thank you for talking about that. So I didn't ask you this in advance. Do you have uh, anything else that you want to share as far as like any products or where or any websites or anything? Oh, um, uh, no, not really. I guess I would just say that um, uh, I love to go and talk to college students. The, the, the genesis of the book was I was giving a lot of uh, conference presentations and college talks to college students who were petrified at the thought of going out and doing musical theater. And so I turned all of their questions into a book. So I love to go and do um, work with college students and do a lecture or a little um, uh, guest appearance and give them, uh, you know, a little version of this. And, and I've done everything from actually renting uh, books and scores and having them play through a show to feel what it's like to just an hour, hour talk. But I love doing that. And I love to um, collaborate with other people uh, who are doing musical theater. And I'm so excited that it looks like we're going to get to go back into the pit soon and yep. get some theater on the boards again. Yep. My, my calendar is pretty blank. So, you know, <laughs> love to fill as far as that goes. So I'd love to yeah fill that up. Uh, all right. Well, again, uh, thank, thank you for this book and thank you for talking about it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And I love the podcast. It's been such a joy to listen to. Right. Yeah, I, I really love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. And that wraps up episode 49. Next week, on May 21st, I'm going to be releasing episode 50. And uh, it's a bit of a special episode, especially for me personally. And I can't wait to share that with you. Um, make sure you're following on social media to see some clues about what that episode is going to be about. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thank you to Mark Parola for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. To leave feedback, or a donation, or to find out more about the podcast, please visit davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.